The only thing larger than the paperwork it sometimes takes to win a federal contract is the amount of complaints you hear from folks both inside and outside the government contracting community. With around $665 billion in goods and services from outside contractors purchased every year, you can of course expect some issues with transparency, equity, and fairness to pop up. However, what can be done to address them? A new report from the Brookings Institution looks to solve some of those problems. I had the chance earlier to discuss some of those suggestions with Brookings senior fellow Daryl West. The federal government has grown enormously in size, and so the reliance on external contractors has grown as well. About 10% of the federal budget goes to outside contractors. That's more than $665 billion every year, so it's a huge amount of money. And so the way in which the government awards these monies is very important for the overall economy. The types of firms that get these types of contracts matters a lot. And of course, we know there have been tremendous complaints about federal procurement and acquisitions policy for years. This is not a new topic. Small businesses complain that all the money is going to large corporations. Women and minority-owned businesses claim they're not getting their fair share. People say there's too much paperwork, there's a lack of transparency in terms of how the process operates. So we wanted to look at this whole topic and just talk about what are the problems with federal acquisitions policy and what can we do better. A significant undertaking. You lay out a few possible reforms that could help address some of those complaints in the national procurement policies. Obviously, won't make you go through every single one of them, but can you lay out the list that you came up with, you and your team did? We came up with a number of ideas that we thought would improve the uh, process. I think one of the most novel ones is when we were looking at the uh, data, like uh, there's information available on which states are getting the federal money. And so we just did a quick breakdown on that. And, you know, it's more than 60 percent of the external contracts go to about a dozen different states. And they are primarily states on the East Coast and the West Coast. There are a few Southern states as well, just because of military contracts and, you know, their number of military bases in the South. But by and large, you know, the typical complaint about the federal government ignoring the heartland actually is true when it comes to federal grants. Uh, like when you look at the vast part of America, you know, three quarters of the states, basically in the interior, in the Midwest, in the Rocky Mountain states and elsewhere, they're not getting that much uh, federal money. So obviously, I think that's something we need to work on. In our report, we highlighted the problem of needing to broaden the geographic diversity of these uh, grants to make sure that the money is more evenly spread out around the country. We know that people in the heartland feel like they're being left behind already. That's a big source of political problems, uh, kind of fuels populist rage at the federal government. And so this is one concrete thing the government can do in the acquisitions area. It's money they control. They can just do a better job of reaching out to companies that are not on the East Coast and not on the West Coast and just try and involve a broader range of companies. Yeah, it's tough, though, because technology companies don't typically base their their operations in the heartland itself. So, you know, maybe the private sector spreading things out a little bit could help as well. Or, you know, is it on them, too, or? No, you're exactly right. It is a problem in the sense, of, especially in the technology area, like most of the big tech companies are either on the East Coast or the West Coast. So it's going to be hard to diversify that. But there is this phenomenon called subcontracting. Like even if a large tech company gets a $5 billion contract, they often will 
have subcontracts to other firms to help execute the project. And so that's one way in which there could be a better geographic balance. When these tech companies are hiring subcontractors, they should think not just about East Coast and West Coast firms, but there's actually quite a bit of uh, talent in the heartland. In fact, you know, because of COVID and remote work, you don't have to work in Seattle anymore to have tech expertise. So there's a lot of tech firms located in Austin and Columbus, Ohio and Omaha that actually could serve as subcontractors on these grants. And that would be a way to achieve better geographic variety. We're speaking with Daryl West, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And so I imagine training of government procurement officers themselves, it's probably an area that could always use some extra training. What did you all think about that? This is a big problem in the federal government right now. I mean, there's been a big retirement wave over the last few years, and that's going to continue in the coming years. And it's hard for the federal government to recruit. You know, they're not paying as much as the private sector in general. And like, especially in the technology area, it's really hard for any federal agency to have the kind of expertise needed to evaluate these external contractors. Like, you know, if there is a request for bids that goes out, you need technical expertise to evaluate those bids. Like, you know, there are a lot of agencies that want to incorporate AI in their operations. You know, it doesn't mean that a federal employee has to be able to code but they need to know enough about AI that they can evaluate the bids. So one of our recommendations is the federal government needs to put much more effort into recruiting workers who have the proper expertise to actually evaluate the bids that come in. And they just need to keep training those individuals. Like once those people are in the workforce, there's just so many changes taking place in the technology area. People need to regularly upgrade their job skills so that they can keep up with the new technologies that are emerging almost every week, if not every month. You mentioned AI. Can the newish kind of technologies like machine learning and things of that nature sort of help fill in that gap where the workforce itself is unable to obtain the knowledge required to do this job? This is an area where the federal government actually wants to do a better job, but it's been difficult for them to actually do it. There are all these new tools, uh, AI, data analytics, uh, machine learning, kind of the latest is generative uh, AI, the chat GBT phenomena, which has gotten uh, lots of attention uh, lately. Federal agencies need to do what the private sector has been doing for years, which is use these new tools to improve their agency operations, the way in which the agencies function, how they analyze and compile information. Like there's just a wealth of data analytic tools out there and federal agencies need to incorporate those uh, things uh, in the procurement process. So for example, fraud is always a concern with uh, government contracts. You can actually use AI to spot the outliers, you know, either bids or companies that just seem a little unusual that are not kind of operating with standard business practices. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty of anything, but when you can use AI to spot outliers, you can then subject those bids to human review to see, is there actually a problem here? Is there fraud? Is there corruption? Is there uh, incompetence or inefficiencies of one sort or another? So we do think if the federal government can start to incorporate AI, data analytics, and machine learning, it would improve their ability to evaluate bids. 
It would improve their ability to evaluate the performance of these companies when they actually have the contracts. Like, are they delivering on what they say they're going to do so? Are they being both efficient and effective in how they operate? So I think these new tools would actually make a big difference if the federal government was able to incorporate them in their operations. And I imagine that if they were able to do that, that would also help with the complaint of the mountains of paperwork that it takes to obtain a federal contract. Is that true? Absolutely. Certainly, there is a huge amount of uh, paperwork because, you know, with government contracts, people rightfully are worried about fraud, corruption, or just outright inefficiency. And so there's a lot of paperwork designed to ferret that out. But then, of course, that poses a lot of problems. It limits the types of businesses that can actually apply for these grants. Like, you know, if you're a small firm with 20 or 25 employees and you have these very detailed federal requests for proposals uh, that come out, like your company, it's going to be hard to have the personnel actually to supply all the uh, paperwork. But there are new tools that could be helpful that can kind of create a more level playing field across small and large uh, businesses. And so it's a way to create greater equity in the process and uh, make sure that the whole process operates more fairly and efficiently. And what about other countries? It's tough to compare systems just because, as you mentioned, the U.S. is is so vast. You know, we're a big economy as well, but there are some forward-leaning nations that have taken steps that are similar to what you suggested. What did you all find? Many countries are struggling with exactly the same thing the U.S. government struggles with in dealing with outside contractors. Uh, You know, we're not alone in having a heavy reliance on businesses outside of a government. So we did look at what other countries are doing, the types of reforms that they are incorporating, and then what kind of results that they are getting. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the United Kingdom, Germany, and other uh, places, some of the types of reforms that they have developed is You know, all these countries want to improve sustainability, so they want kind of a focus on environmental factors, uh, reducing the carbon footprint of their operations. There's a lot of uh, kind of interest in pursuing those types of goals. So there are countries that have incorporated sustainability as a criterion on which they're going to evaluate uh, federal bids and give greater weight to companies that actually are promising sustainability in terms of how they execute uh, government contracts. And the interesting thing is when you actually look at the results, we're finding, and these other countries have found, that if you focus on sustainability as a criteria, you start to get more bids uh, that actually emphasize that and have the ability to execute on that. The same thing has taken place in regard to innovation. Like every government wants to be more innovative, more efficient, and more effective in how they uh, do things. So countries are now prioritizing innovation as a criterion on which to evaluate external bids and rewarding companies that are truly being innovative in the products they use, how they operate, their organizational structure, and so on. So when you look at other countries, they are starting to achieve good results on the criteria that are important to them. And those are criteria, you know, sustainability and innovation that also should be of great interest to the United States. The federal procurement system itself is one that takes its time in general. And I'm sure that that's true for reforms to the federal procurement system itself. Where do we go from here, I guess, is the question, you know, are these changes that could be implemented just, you know, at the stroke of a pen or would it take actually some action from maybe Congress or some laws getting written as well that would add to the timeline? 
Some of these things are recommendations that can be implemented uh, pretty uh, quickly. The interesting thing is we put out a report, which uh, for people who want uh, more details, that's available uh, free online at brookings.edu. We also did an event a couple weeks ago where we had some of the top officials who handle and oversee federal procurement on. They heard our recommendations, and so we had a direct a channel to them. They talked about their interest in actually doing uh, many of the things uh, that we talked about. And in some cases, they actually have reforms underway that actually are going to do this. Like the Biden administration has prioritized getting more money out to small businesses, uh, having more contracts go to women and minority-owned businesses. So they are making progress in the sense of setting goals for themselves and then trying to push towards better implementation. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself 
you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward 
the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.